0: Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Julie Cook. And I'm Janine Dunn. I'm Matt Downing. And you are listening to Rethinking EDU. Hey, co-hosts, we're in our last episode here of our DIP Researcher Spotlight. And what a better way than to spotlight ourselves, right? <laughs> Matt, I know you're I know you're excited about talking about your research. And all three of us are sort of winding down our dissertation studies right now. In fact, uh, Matt and I actually have the exact same dissertation defense date and time. I don't know how you feel about that, Matt. I'm a little disappointed I can't come to your defense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's the only disappointing part for me, too, that I can't root you on. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm going to have two screens going. (laughs) Yeah, we'll be there for Janine and Julie's defense, which is next week, which we're super excited about. And in order to help prep them and us for our impending defense here, we are going to talk through our research here with you all. During this episode, we're going to do a little uh, interview style back and forth with one another and you get to know us a little bit more and you get to know our research a little bit more, which is super exciting. But before we dig into that, we want to start with one of those fun little in-depth dissertation and doctoral study-like questions that we want to give you some insights on. And this one I think is a really important one. Um, You know, there's, there's a pretty strong attrition rate in doctoral programs across the country. Um, it's somewhere around, um, 50% of people complete or do not complete, you know, for all of you, um, negative Nancy's out there, but for the optimists in the world, about 50% of people successfully complete their full doctoral program. And that means from coursework to the end of coursework, where you move from doctoral student to doctoral candidate, and then you work on your dissertation and you complete your entire dissertation, and then you defend your dissertation at the end, and that's when you're finally conferred upon as Dr. So-and-so. Most people, or some people, however you want to look at it, stop at the doctoral dissertation phase, and they never complete the dissertation, which is the most daunting of the tasks in a doctoral program. And tonight, I would just want to chat with the co-host for a little bit here and see so for you all, what have been some of those strategies that you've used? What have been some of those things that you've really leaned on in the last, you know, months, years that have really helped you kind of make it to the the finish line here to not be one of the 50 or so percent of people that don't finish the program? Um and Julia, I, I think I'd like to start with you. You always have great insights. I'd love to hear. You know, what have you leaned on in your life in the program that has helped you kind of move to completion here?
2: Well, I think first off, um, if you're adding something to your schedule, um, and there are hours and hours a week that you are adding to your schedule, so something's got to give in order for you to keep your sanity. Uh, So maybe you have to give up the grocery store. Um, Maybe you do HelloFresh for (laughs) six months. Um, Maybe maybe you enlist, uh, the help of, you know, your family to get you through. Um, so, and then the other thing I would say is, you know, ruthless scheduling with yourself, you know, um, you know, every Sunday from three to eight, you know, that's your time, uh, whatever you need to do in order to block out that time. And, um, you know, life can get in the way. Um, that's what I would say is ruthless scheduling. I guess one more thing I would say is to choose your dissertation chair very, mm. very carefully, um, making sure that you know their way of going about things um, ma- meshes with yours. And um, yeah, so those, those are the things that come to mind.
0: And just to build on that a little bit, I think not being afraid to make a request to change your dissertation chair, uh, if you think that that is... The possible best move for you. Um, Matt, I know that you switched your dissertation chair kind of late into the game. How did that process go? Did you feel okay about that? Were you nervous? And how do you think that impacted your um, sort of, you know, path to the finish line here?
1: Yeah, I think it's critical, right, with the chair. Now, I did switch my chair, but it wasn't by choice. Our chair, Mike, we had the same one, I believe. Mm -hmm. Our chair became yeah, dean right. or something <laughs> so she, she, she couldn't take on uh <laughs> the chair role and i got along with her she was great she was very clear up front um but i do think a chair or your advisor your mentor whatever you want to like it's officially the chair um is so important i would almost say like if you're out there thinking about getting a doctorate and you are like connected with or have a network with a teacher in a certain program, I would almost pick a program based on if someone could be my chair. I think it makes that big of a difference. Mm. I was blessed that, you know, Dr. Unger took me on and that has been game changer because the communication, you're able to speak freely and communicate effectively. You're not always worried about, you know, what do they think? Well, I just asked Dr. Unger, like, what do you think? Am I on track? And he could tell me, yeah, you're on track, but I'm going to send you some stuff in a couple of weeks, but you're good, you know, so we can have those uh, conversations. But, yeah, it's, it's been important, you know, to have a chair. But if you don't have a chair that you're, like, look up to or look up as a mentor or something like that, that's okay, too. But just have those conversations and clarify things. And like Mike said, you know, if you're not getting along, switch it up you know, this is your money, this is your program and get someone that you feel like could support you. Because I think that a chair could prevent you um, from completing your dissertation uh, pretty easily.
0: Or conversely, right, carry you to the finish line too. Yeah, yeah, that's my yeah, yeah, That's right. (laughs) And you're, you know, Chris, your your chair has really, I think, brought a lot of life to your study here at the end and Mm -hmm. really helped to move it from- I, I wouldn't say your your study was in a rough place. It just it was in a place where you weren't as excited about it as maybe
1: um mm-hmm. Julie and
0: Janine and I were. But I, I've seen Chris yep. breathe a little life into that thing in a really positive way.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: Now Janine, what what has been your experience trying to, you know, move to the finish line here? And you know, just before we started recording, you were talking about some of the struggles you were having with the program in general and I think that's going to be true for any doctoral student, right? You're going to experience things in a program that you love and that you don't love, and you got to kind of move through the things you don't love. Um, so, talk about what has kind of helped keep keep you on track.
3: Yeah, no, I would definitely say there, there's going to be things that pop up that you're just like, "Do I have to do this?" or "You're kidding?" Like it's it's almost like going through the motions or jumping through the hoops to <laughs> it's it's on the it's on the the things to do list. You got to get it done. Um, And actually, that's what that is. One of my tips is to I had a lot of post-it notes all over the place and I had a daily things to do list and was constantly, you know, checking things off. And I had stuff marked on my calendar, you know, um, trying to keep myself organized for when things needed to be turned in and and that kind of stuff. But I would also go back and just kind of reiterate what uh, Julie and Matt were saying here, like connecting with people, like not just connecting with your, your dissertation chair, but connecting with you know, other people that are in the program, I think, I think that by having that human connection, uh, it holds you more accountable. Like I know certainly meeting you guys and, 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 you know, going into the program with Julie, who's, (laughs) um, that held me accountable for sure. I know we were constantly always checking in with each other and, you know, you know, what, what do we got going on trying to support each other? Um, so I think that was huge. I think, I think connecting with people is definitely, um, that saved me. I don't, I don't know if I would have made it to the finish line if I didn't have you guys, honestly. So,
1: so another thing that comes to mind is, especially with action research, um, you don't want to skimp on the research, but that seems kind of obvious, but, but I think that's what prevents people in action research is like, oh, I'll do that later, but you can't do it later. You have to do it now because if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. So I think, um, and I, and I was thinking about that the other night. I'm like, what's, what's something that kept me going well, I put a lot of effort and a lot of energy in the actual action research. Um, you know, some of my other pieces, you could say, were struggling. But, but I think my research was, was really solid, and uh, that's what kept me going. But I think, and I don't know, I could be wrong, but I think some people that aren't finishing, especially with an action research, they're like, oh, I'll just do a study to get by, or I'll just do just enough. Well, that just enough isn't going to cut it, because you need data, you need this, you need that, you're not going to have anything to form your codes or your dissertation chair isn't going to accept it. It's not going to move past that. So it's just another thing um, that I think is really important. Yeah.
0: I think you have to balance that too, Matt, right? Because Mm -hmm. as we lovingly say on this podcast and as many people in the field of academia will say a good dissertation or perhaps the best dissertation is a done dissertation. Um, mm-hmm. And you kind of have to balance your uh, rigor of research, the way you approach the literature, your data collection with uh, keeping pace, like you, you have to move mm-hmm. forward too, right mm-hmm. and I think that's sort of what you're saying here is that like, especially in action research you got to get to doing the doing, in addition to mm-hmm. just talking about and reading about the doing. Well, thanks, co-host. That was a lovely little segment there. I appreciated that. Um, we're going to dive into our, our short little interviews with each other now. I'm going to pass the mic over to Janine in a quick second. And we hope that you love the research that we're going to talk about tonight. So Janine, have at it.
3: All right. Great. <clears throat> well, I'm going to be kicking it off with Matt here. And uh, so we're going to have Matt, we're going to have you start off by telling us you know, about your study and provide us with some of the, the context for your study.
1: Cool. thanks, Janine. Um, yeah. So my study was based around the problem that technology has transformed society. It's transformed the way that we interact. It's transformed the way we do everything. Right. Think about the last time you ordered a taxi, you know, ordered your groceries or bought something for your house right it was probably done with the click of a button on your phone um and it's transformed society we can't deny that but oftentimes when we walk into schools we experience the opposite it's almost like we're going back in time um, instead of going to the future or progressing with the way society interacts with technology and i feel like that's to the detriment of students that's to the detriment of learning we're not leveraging Technology in a transformative way um, and so I wanted to look at that right. I wanted to look at how can virtual professional development sessions support teachers in effective use of technology for teaching and learning in their classrooms. All right. That's a lot of j- jibber jabber. But what I'm trying to get at with that is is I want to look at learning as the door. Okay, and we want to move that door. And so we're going to use hinges and we're going to look at professional development as the hinge to move that door. And that door is going to move uh, along with technology, and technology is going to be able to make that door, that learning, transformative. And that's really what I wanted to look at um, with the problem and, and with my research. And I did this research within a uh, you know, traditional public school, to diverse urban uh, public school district right outside of Philadelphia, and I, and I zeroed in on middle school. And so throughout the study, uh, that was sort of my focus group, and, uh, and that was the motivation behind the study.
3: All right, so do you want to tell us a little bit about how you carried out your study, and then um, what some of your findings were?
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So I did a five-part professional development, virtual professional development series, um, so volunteer participants. Right, they came and we did it after school. And each session, we focused on one idea could be audio, could be video, could be we focused less on tools, like you know, we're gonna learn this and more on okay, how are we gonna use audio in the classroom in transformative ways? So, again, we're leveraging technology through professional development. Um, And and that was really interesting and and it seemed really powerful because one, it was voluntary, the other thing is, it was a cohort. So we did this together through five weeks. Uh, it was concise. So it was forty-five minutes. It wasn't hour and a half, it wasn't two, three hours. Forty-five minutes. Let's get in, get out. And then through that, I really came to to understand that the virtual environment um, has unique aspects that we can leverage. That's obviously different than physical. But a lot of times we look at virtual as negative. Oh, I got Zoom fatigue, and those things are real. But there's some positives, and we can uh, orchestrate those virtual environments uh, to bring about transformative change. Like For example, we can keep them concise. We can keep them flexible. We could uh, have a lot of people on there because it's not deemed by physical space. We can have them at interesting times of the day because we don't have to travel to and from. We can also ask questions in interesting ways um, to get people to participate. And then I brought in Janine, Julie, and Mike, came to the last session of the professional development and we we guided a design studio. One of the focuses of that was I wanted to bring to the forefront the idea of action. So how does a design studio fit with technology? Well, it kind of does and it kind of doesn't. So it's not about technology. It's about leveraging things in a way that brings about transformative change. And I'm using technology a lot of times as a medium. And so people came with an issue they wanted to solve and we helped them through protocols Uh, leave with action steps and then they took those action steps and uh, and went into their classroom and actually did something Uh, so some findings right there were a lot of findings uh, from this study but I want to talk about some unexpected findings so there were a couple Um, one attitudes and beliefs play a transformative role in the way technology is integrated we don't think about that when's the last time we've had a session on uh, attitudes and beliefs when we integrate technology never Well, I don't know, I led some, maybe there's some across the country, but that doesn't happen. We're like, let's take Nearpod, and here's how you use Nearpod. But we're skipping a step, we're skipping the foundation, the foundation, if it's on rocky ground, uh, or not solid ground, is going to crumble. And that's what's happening. Another thing I've noticed is there's diverse ways to participate and collaborate. A lot of times we're focusing too much on their screens off. They're not talking, so they're not participating. Well there's many ways to participate. Just because someone screens off or they're not speaking orally doesn't mean that they're not there, doesn't mean that they're engaged. I think we need to think about new ways to engage them. What can we do in a virtual setting to actually engage them where they would want to interact? Let's not think about screen. Let's not think about if they're speaking aloud. Let's think about how do I want them to participate and what can I do to get them to participate. Another thing I've really been thinking about is the virtual benefits right and it really brings to light the thoughtful construction a lot of times we throw things together we're all in school districts we see things thrown together in other places too so let's not bash school districts but thoughtfully constructed every decision has to be made in a virtual environment or it'll crumble and that's the way we should approach it and again we should think about how we can bring that to the personal and just another unexpected finding right everyone wonders All right, in in your dissertation, Matt, what did you find out about technology? What's the the technology they like the most? Well, here's the thing I found. No one talked about technology they like the most. They talked about trust. They talked about relationships. They talked about leading and being led. They talked about collaborating. They talked about, I want to hear people talk to help me get over my fear, and I want to be heard. That's not about their newest Chromebook. That's not about the newest software. That's not about the newest app. It goes deeper than that, and we're skipping that step oftentimes, and it's to the detriment of the technology integration across school systems.
3: I love that. I love. I love how you talked about the, the, <laughs> the unexpected finding of you know the attitudes and uh, just you know taking that into consideration about technology before you even really are you know. What, what is the technology being used for? and what are people's perspectives on it? Um, that's interesting. And that idea of, you know, if somebody ha- different ways in which people can participate, I th- that's been a huge thing. I've heard from people with the screens off and you know, does it mean that you're being rude or is it just that maybe you're able to focus more, you know? Um, so that that's interesting that you re- that you brought that up. I, I, w- I wonder, how, did you ever try using Discord with uh, with any of them?
1: No, no, I didn't use Discord. We, stick, we stuck with the zoom, and it was frustrating, you know, to, to not get that feedback, but it made, me, it made me ask the question, "Why?" you know? And, then, and I asked the participants that. I said, "Why, why didn't you like, speak aloud more?" <laughs> and some of them said they weren't comfortable. They were nervous. They didn't want to be wrong. They uh, didn't know uh, how many people were going to speak. They didn't know what people would think of them, so I was like, "You know what? I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have focused so much on that as the moderator. I should have been focusing on what can I do to allow them to participate in a way that makes them most comfortable. Um, and I didn't ask that question until after.
3: Yeah, and what was your participation rate like? Did, was it easy to have volunteers participate, or uh, did you kind of have to send out multiple invites? Or.
1: Yeah, so I got a great participation rate. I actually ran two action steps. I ran a pilot I ran a pilot version where I had 30 people. I actually had to cut it off at 30 and that was like a pilot. That didn't count in the research and then I did another round and that was my action step. I got another 20, well 30 but then 7 didn't show up so it was down to 23 which is fine. But it wasn't that difficult. People were into it um, because they haven't gotten something like this before. In the school district Um, and let me just share a couple, you know, in closing, let me just share a couple implications uh, as people think about this um, within their context. So when a school district brings a technology integration plan, you need to have a vision, right? And within, under that vision, you need to have goals and under those goals, you need to have a technology integration model. I want to say this, and I, I believe this, if you don't have a vision, you don't have goals, you don't have a model, you are not integrating technology in a transformative way in your school district. I, I believe that and I think that's true. So before you talk about what uh, hosting system and apps and Chromebooks and blah, 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 what is your vision for technology integration? What are your goals? What's your model that you are going to follow? Because if you don't have that, you are going to haphazardly throw around technology in the same way that you came to the conclusion of the technology that you're integrating. There was none. There wasn't a goal. There wasn't a vision. There wasn't a model. Another thing that I've I've come to realize is that voluntary groups are a great means uh, to allow people to interact. Okay. How can we do that? Forcing someone to attend a PD isn't going to work. It's never worked. Let's use virtual elements um, in a volunteer way to bring about change another thing that implication that I think institutions need to consider is how much are you talking about deeper learning in respect to technology think about the amount of time you spend on talking about deeper learning in respect to technology versus budget hardware software apps and teaching tutorials on those things troubleshooting what's the balance Uh, you know those other things should be minimal compared to uh, Experi you know experiencing deeper learning activities in school and then the last implication for institutions I think is the construction of professional development sessions is as important as the content so before you throw stuff whether it be technology or something else at people think about how you're gonna construct it are you gonna do a design studio why are you gonna give space hands-on learning why Are you going to group people in certain ways? Why? Are you going to uh, have people collaborate? Why? What are they going to create? Why are you going to have them create that? So the construction of the professional development session, be it with technology or something else, is as important as the content you're going to deliver. And a lot of times we, myself included, aren't spending as much time thinking about the construction, and we wonder why our PDs fail. Because we're throwing stuff at people without thought, and it falls on the ground.
3: I certainly think that the timing of your your research here was perfect, <laughs> uh, given everything that we've just been through with the, the pandemic and having to learn virtually. So, um, you know, looking at this virtual PD um, certainly will help other schools that are thinking about you know different approaches to implementing new technology and such. So. Well Matt, thanks so much for sharing your your study with us. I'm going to kick it off over to Julie. Hi there. And Mike, you're now on the hot seat as they say.
0: <laughs> Yikes. I'm used to being the host here. This is like scary. Yeah.
2: Can you set the scene for us? What were you hoping to find out about?
0: Yeah, sure. So, I work at a small private school. It's grades 1 through 12. It's located just outside of Philadelphia. We serve students who have language based learning disabilities. So, common diagnoses of students who attend our school are things like dyslexia or dysgraphia or dyscalculia. Um, the school's been around for about 15 years uh, and it is arts based, college preparatory in nature. Most of our students um, head on off to college after they graduate. And my job at the school is as the director of college counseling. So, I help students figure out a path for themselves. As uh, they graduate and continue on to live their lives. So, my study started off concerned with change, just change in schools in general. And in particular, my context offers a really unique view on change. As a private school, we are a nonprofit. So, that means that we are reliant on tuition dollars to continue to stay open. But we also have this dual mission as an institution to try to serve the greater student population of the world that learn differently. And so there is this need of the school to continue to grow to serve its students. We've um, grown about 1,500% <laughs> in our 15 years. Um, so we, we started with 24 students and we're now at 385 students. And that context is sort of where I came in and am experiencing this place for over a decade and I'm thinking, wow, there's lots of change that happens here. Some of it is sort of tumultuous and, and you know, and some of it is really positive, but change at other schools, change at schools across the country does not happen so much as it happens at this little place. And this is the, the heart of the issue that I was trying to look at with my, with my study. And in fact, a, f- a funny quick aside to this is when I applied to the Northeastern program, I wrote my um, application essay about how I think schools need to change to better serve students in the 21st century. I didn't know if I was going to be able to um, study that phenomenon through you know, this program, but I, I found a way to do that in my school. And it's been, it's been pretty, pretty interesting along the way. I'll just mention one more thing about the context is that we're a unique school. Most traditional public schools across the country have this deep, deep, rich history of hundreds of years of school experience. That means people who are attending to school are building their experience on those who attended it previously, AKA their parents, right? And their parents are, are building the idea of what school should be based on their own experience and the experience of potentially their parents. And the, that sort of collective consciousness, or in my study, I call it collective memory that we've built about school has informed our expectations of school. And that, outside of my context, is a really important phenomenon to to keep in mind as we look at the context that I'm acting in. Does that paint a pretty good picture for you, Julie?
2: It sure does. So I'm wondering about, you know, the problem of practice. How did you define uh, the current practices at your school, and then how did you set about trying to understand what was currently happening and which direction uh your participants um in the study you know which where which way did they want to go how did this study come about
0: yeah yeah um so i decided in my study kind of early on to look at individual actors within the school because systemic change was going to be a little hard to examine in a really small really young school so i was looking at these individual actors that were acting as as change agents within our school. And I was curious, you know, as these people were constructing new programs, as they were bringing about opportunities for students, as they were designing new systems, what kinds of experiences were they having? And the first part of my study, the uh, Cycle 1 data collection, focused on just general experiences of change agents at our school over However many years they had been participants in the school's community, whether that was as a parent, as a student, as a board member, as a faculty member. And my problem that I was really trying to tackle was, so these change agents, they're doing this work within the school, they're doing these things, but yet not all of the change is sticking around. Some of it stays, some of it goes. And some opportunities stay, some opportunities go. And I'm wondering why, like what's going on here? You know, what is happening that is causing these change agents to kind of struggle through the implementation of their new initiatives? And I discovered, at least my hypothesis was that they were lacking a little bit of experience leading change. And they were bumping into this sort of unique school culture. And then the kind of, byproduct of that was that students within the school were actually just missing out on really interesting, cool new opportunities because these change agents were sort of struggling to make things happen within the school.
2: Wow. Um, I, I guess I haven't, I thought about systemic change. A lot of us have been talking and using that language. Why don't schools change? And even Matt just alluded to, you know, why are we stuck? You know, um, Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to take it, you know, an individual at a time, and and wonder about that. You know, how do how do people affect change? Um, how do we change in, individually? Uh, so that's pretty fascinating, um, and could be transformative as well in a in a school setting. Um, so- for sure uh what about so how did you seek to tackle the problem?
0: Yeah, so as I mentioned a bit ago, my first data collection was all just about experiences that people were having with change and kind of how that impacted their understandings of change, their um, views of the school's dealings with change, and what kind of structures existed in the school that either inhibited or facilitated change you know, and so from that data collection, I learned a lot about the schools um members and how they valued teams, how, how they valued new things happening at the school, how they valued new things happening at the school, and how they valued continuity within their practices and their classrooms and the school's culture. So that was like one element of the study was just about learning, learning from individuals in the school and engaging with these individuals in these conversations about their experiences. And it was super powerful to be able to do that. From there I kind of shifted gears and said, okay, like these are the things that people have stated that they see as significant issues. Let's try to work with an actual group of change agents that are doing things in the school and trying to make new things happen. Let's work with them and figure out like how can we just get in the weeds together and and move our way forward. And start to kind of tease out what are some of the experiences they're having? What are some of the challenges they're running into? What are some of the competencies that are necessary for them to move their change forward? And so, my my action step of this study engaged five individuals in the school in a program that we call Leadership for the Future. Leadership for the Future is a community of practice that meets throughout the academic year. I'm one of the facilitators of the Leadership for the Future cohort. People apply into Leadership for the Future program, and uh, in, for short, instead of me just saying that all the time, I'm going to call it LFF, people apply into the LFF program with a project and an idea to act as a change agent in some way in the school. They say, I want to do this. Can you provide for me the community of practice to support my activity in this area? They don't get any extra money. They don't get any extra time. Instead, they just dedicate themselves to this group throughout the course of the year. And the group meets roughly every other month for about two hours. And we have conversations about how is your activity going as a change agent? And then we also examine literature around competencies that change agents identify within the cohort as being important for them to want to work on. So for example, this year's Change Agent Group identified um, making decisions with a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens as an important competency that we wanted to work on. So we read some things, listened to some podcasts, watched some videos about that concept. And then we people went out and did work on their project for about two months. And then we all came back together and said, how did that go? And we reflected and we kind of learned and uh, grew together as a group and so we engaged um together as a change agent cohort over i would say roughly 6 months or so of time and um i just collected data along the way you know i kept a field journal i did some interviews we um did a couple of uh like reflection opportunities and it was really great you know the people who participated at the change agent level really enjoyed their participation in the study. I also hosted three focus groups just to get some perspective on what things people have valued in terms of change in the AIM community. And so my three groups were pretty specific. I wanted to get some more input from past change agents. People have done work in the past and really made some new program happen. I wanted to figure out what could they tell me that was useful for this current group that I was working with. I also wanted to talk with students. So I chatted with some alumni and chatted with some current students in focus groups and got their take on what they thought that change agents should be focused on to kind of improve their experience as students within the school. Those three different focus groups kind of informed the greater scope of my study around whether change agents were able to be doing things that were meaningful for students, meaningful for the community, and whether they could be, you know sustained over the long term.
2: So what do you think uh, for our listeners, um, what are the takeaways? What are the implications um, for other schools who might be thinking, or other teachers just thinking about how can I um, you know, I see things that I want to change? Uh, where do I start? What do I do?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first thing is I say you got to work on yourself as a change agent. You have to work on your own competencies and say, how can I improve my confidence as a person who is able to facilitate change? How can I improve my identity? How can I see myself as more of a change agent? How can I improve my communication skills? And probably Equally important to all of those things, how can I figure out how to improve my skills in navigating the institution in which I am working? That was a really big finding from the study, is that change agents needed to be aware of the institution of school in which they were acting, and that that institution fundamentally had an impact on their activity.
2: Oh, I was just wondering... um... Is there anything that you've been thinking about for schools to consider? So if there's something to consider for the teacher or the um, the individual, whoever that would be in a, in a school setting, what about the institution? Um, what kinds of things can they put in place to facilitate, to nurture this kind of change agentry?
0: So first is the school can help develop um ongoing communities of practice, like the LFF cohort. That was probably easily the biggest takeaway. And also like the biggest softball takeaway from this study was that surprise, surprise, change agents when supported were, were like happy and and learned more about themselves and, you know, like made progress in, in their programs. And so that was that was number one. I would say in two other things that are important for schools to do. First is that schools have to spend time uh, developing an understanding of their positionality within their communities. So what was interesting about our school is that we're a private school, and a lot of people think that private schools can just sort of do whatever it is that they want to do. But the problem is, is that we you know, subsist on tuition dollars. And if we don't bring in new students or continue to fill the seats every year with tuition dollars, then we're going to go out of business as a school. And I say that as a nonprofit entity, you know, we need tuition dollars to come into the door to help sustain our school and our school's mission. And the struggle with that is you think you want to change a school, right? You think you want to offer something that's really fundamentally different for students, But if you don't take a look at your community and ask yourself, where is my community in their preparation for something that's fundamentally different, then you're going to change into something that people don't want. And that is really, really challenging. As a private school, we have to be hyper aware of who our users are. We have to say, we want to be innovative. We want to be progressive. We want to be student-centered. But if we are too much outside of what the traditional understanding or collective memories of school are, then we're going to essentially like freak people out and they're going to want to go to other schools, right? Um, And so I think that that is really critical for a school to identify where are they in their communities in terms of what is um, possible for change agents to make happen. And then the last thing I would say is that schools have got to figure out a way to engage student voice in really legitimate ways in helping make decisions around change within their institutions if students are on board with things then all of a sudden you have you know however many students you have you have 1200 advocates in your uh, at your disposal in your school saying i love this thing and it's really hard to kind of upset the feelings of love that students share about learning and new opportunities and programs against you know, the more traditional understandings of what school should be. So more opportunities schools can give for students to act in circuits of power and engage their voices in really legitimate ways, I think is going to be better for schools as they try to change.
2: Well, and what occurs to me, Mike, is that the students are watching us, right? Uh, So what what a great model uh, for them to see themselves in that light as well. So fantastic. So interesting. I'm riveted. Matt, I'm going to pass the mic over to you to talk to me about my, <laughs> my dissertation and um, the research that I've completed at my school over the past three years.
1: All right. Yeah. So you're on the hot seat, Julie, and I'm excited to hear more about your research and to get into the findings and so forth. But before we do that, bring us into sort of a, a brief overview of the context of of your study and sort of the impetus of your study, your problem of practice,
2: Sure. well, I work at a small uh, charter school outside of Philadelphia, um, and I've been there for 20 years, I think. Um, the school opened in two thousand, and I came shortly thereafter, so about that long. And our founder really had an interesting vision for what school could look like and I think early on, you know we all know that there's a difference between being a startup and then sustaining that vision. Um, and that's really where my problem of practice uh, comes in. So the, one of the missions of our school is this idea of collaborative leadership. So we have lots of components of our mission. Um, We are, you know, personalized learning, experiential learning, rooted in community, uh, parent community partnerships. But how we pull that off is through collaborative leadership. So I think a lot of maybe charter school listeners uh, might connect with this because we don't have a district office. Uh, There's no coordinators. There's no... um, content supervisors, you know, we are all there is, the teachers. And because of that, uh, sort of by necessity, but also by design, we make a lot of the decisions that affect our practice um, and affect student learning. So that being said, we can all say that collaborative leadership is um, an effective model. There's lots of schools um, across the country that are Centered around this idea that it doesn't need to be a hierarchical model in a school, um, a top down model. It could be uh, a flatter organization, as our founder liked to say. Um, But it's not easy. Um, Just to say we have a flatter organization, we're all going to be making these decisions collaboratively together, um, it's hard to pull off in practice, as I've learned over the past uh, couple of decades. so when we started our research um, three years ago, um, I think it's sort of important to paint a picture. We had just recently been designated as a teacher-powered school um, and see our previous episodes uh, for what that's all about. But teacher-powered schools uh, were really coming into our focus and we started to look at how other models were doing it. So we started to wonder, how can we do collaborative leadership better? How can it get easier, more streamlined? Um, And what other possibilities are there for us? So that's a little bit about how the study started.
1: Great. So bring us into, as you were doing your action step, what was your action step within your research, what was, what was the action that you were trying to do and then get research out of that?
2: Right. We, so we started with, um, interviews, just trying to understand through two different cycles of interviews, uh, what was the experience like for teachers working at a school with collaborative leadership? And it's not surprising to learn that there are opportunities and there are challenges. Um, and those opportunities, um, are, significant. Um, Teachers reported that, you know, they had uh, a greater sense of community, um, that we feel like we're family here, um, that the communication made things easier, more creative, lots of positives to uh, communicating with each other all day long. The challenges were also significant, however, um, and that's also not um, surprising, I think, for people to understand. Anybody who's tried to work in in a group Um, you know, individual personalities come into play, trying to come to consensus. Should we have to come to consensus on everything? What kinds of things are your decisions? What kinds of things are our decisions? Um, All of that comes into play. So when we interviewed, when I interviewed the um, teachers throughout the building and the administrators throughout the building, um, we really looked at what was the working experience of teachers like. Um, What kinds of things do they recommend that we focus on to improve their working experience? Um, And then we really looked at the two biggest areas. Of course, in the middle of a pandemic, we were working on collaboration. Um, We had to sort of change the way we were going to approach our action step. But what we came up with was to focus on the two big areas that we saw that teachers identified to improve their experience uh, in this model, in this governance model. So I ended up tracking the experiences of two design teams, we called them. The first team worked to create experiences for all teachers, uh, intended to improve the personal interactions between teachers and build the personal capacity for participation and teaming. And then the second design team worked to document and improve collaborative decision-making processes because that's really what people were talking about. Exactly half of my participants, that's really what they wanted to focus on is the interpersonal communication, trying to get better personally at interacting with the team members on a day-to-day basis. Um, And then the second team really wanted to streamline the processes so that we weren't taking so long. It's messy. It's a disorganized process. It's informal, we said. Um, And people wanted to actually formalize some of the protocols and processes that we had in place. So that's what we set out to do um, over the course of the past three years. Uh, We really put some tight protocols into place, and then we piloted new programs. We defined our existing practices, and we investigated those other models. We developed processes for decision-making, and then we just reflected and documented that progress. One significant thing that we did for the interpersonal interactions between uh, team members, we actually had embedded coaches that tracked their team's experiences. They curated some resources for them to use um, in order to work with their teams. Um, And then they work together to come up with a process for how they might do this in the future. Um, So that I think was significant that they came up with a process, both design teams, and were able to implement it. And then that could actually be implemented in the future, that same process. So thinking about what can we do to get better and let's move through a process. So that was significant.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting work that you're doing, and it's interesting in a lot of different ways, and it's very important as well. Um, it's interesting because there's very few schools that I know of that are operating like that, and so I'm curious about your implications, um, sort of your implications for an organization like yourself, right, that supports that leadership, the collaborative leadership, but I'm also curious to see if you have any implications for a school, a traditional school district, maybe uh, something like I'm working in um, that could bring more of this collaborative leadership there as well.
2: Sure. Um, well, I think, as I said, there are other models and that's one of the takeaways I think I have for people is to study the outliers. Think about the way school is doesn't have to be the way school is going to be. Um, and you can really look at other models to say, hey, you know, what about the way they're organized can really change um, my experience working in a school. So thinking about teacher professionalism, you know, I think teaching is one of the only professions that I can think of um, that you're really responsible and accountable for implementing in in some degree other people's plans. Um, So how can we give teachers more agency? How can we give teachers more say, uh, a seat at the table? Um, I think there is a continuum, um, as I think we've talked about before on this podcast. And there's some schools that have, you know, total freedom where teachers can really uh, take some risks, try new things out, work together to just approach school in a whole new way. And other teachers are you know, really working, as Mike said, within this system. So we're all working within a system, but there are people who are doing things differently. So if we start with this idea that collaborative leadership, more people at the table at least for input um, is effective, how can we take those models and apply some new things to what we're doing already? The other thing I think that is important to consider is collaborative leadership is learned behavior you know it's not surprising to think about but we have to develop capacity in order to participate in something like collaborative leadership it goes back to what mike was saying not all teachers expect to have a seat at the table um and i in fact one of my participants says i don't want to have a seat at the table i want to set the table so not not everybody's prepared to do that or expects that of themselves So working on those individual characteristics to have that flexibility, um, to understand where other people are coming from, uh, to increase your communication skills, to try to bring other people to the table. Um, you You can lead, but not if no one's following you, right? So how do we work through all of that? And then I think, again, to create a replicable model I think this whole idea of action research really has settled into our school now uh where we have this model where we can take you know here's a problem of practice let's investigate what are we doing now let's look outside of ourselves and see if we can generate some new ideas gather some resources you know gather our wits about us put together a plan pilot it reflect and then the cycle continues so I think that's another thing that Uh, this study brought to my school personally that I think could be replicable in other schools.
1: Cool. Thanks, Julie. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for all the work uh, that you're doing. Excited to see it continue. And that's the thing about action research. It's going to continue on. Um, So I'm going to hand it off to Mike. Uh, Mike, you got it. Take the baton. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate
0: that. So I'm going to be chatting with Janine, our last person here to talk about their research in our DIP series. Janine, you get to bring us all home. So tell us about your context, Janine.
3: Yay. I'm so excited <laughs> to finally be at this point. Um, yeah. So let me just provide a little uh, context, a little background for you all. So first of all, my study actually uh, took a look at implementing personalized learning environments and the effects on teaching practices. And once I explain my context here, you'll, you'll see why I chose to kind of go that route. But um, So the school that I work at, I've been there for over 16 years. So I'm definitely, it definitely was like an insider working with insiders here because um, of this being an action research sort of project. Um, And the school itself, it it is a charter school. It's in the suburbs. And, you know, being a charter school, we have expectations for, we have to be innovative with our practices. Uh, We, we have to do well. Um, We need to meet state mandates and, you know, and, and follow out the mission of our school. And if we, if we don't do those things, we get shut down. <laughs> so um, it's all really important that we we are continuing to be on a trajectory of growth and that we are constantly reflecting on our practices and, you know, taking a look at setting goals and where do we go, to go next, right? Um, so the mission of our school really focuses around being able to provide students with hands-on learning experiences, uh, within an individualized setting. And that's supported through collaboration between the faculty, the students, the parents and and community members. And, um, I chose to really focus in on that piece of the mission that, that looks at individualizing for our students. Um, and there was a number of reasons for that, but Basically, and when I say individualization, on a side note here real quick, uh, so individualization and personalized learning or individualized learning, um, I kind of use those terms uh, interchangeably throughout my my studies and research here. Um, when I had interviewed a lot of our teachers, uh, we they all came to the agreement that basically um, individualization and personalized learning is, is the same thing. So if you hear me go back and forth, I just wanted to make note of that real quick. But <laughs> anyway yeah so anyway so back to our mission you know with individualization being a piece uh a, a real cornerstone of our mission um you know one of the things that i knew going into this was that it had never been documented like how does individualization actually happen at our school um so that was kind of one uh driving force of it as well as far as like our local context and then really in a, in a larger sense too um you know, back in, I think it was 2016, the uh, Every Student Succeeds Act had, had come into law, had been passed. And um, within the wording of the law there was wording that applied to personalized learning. There was a push for personalized learning within the classrooms. Um, so I figured that um not only do in a local context where it can be applied to our school here, but then also in the larger context of like how our teachers actually implementing personalized learning throughout the the country, basically. But <laughs> so that was the the larger context there.
0: Cool. That sounds great. So walk us through um some of your findings and how you kind of came to those findings.
3: Yeah, so uh kind of as everybody had talked about here, we had we had two different cycles of uh you know data collection and Um, I went through and was uh, interviewing teachers, doing classroom observations, looking at documents that we had, and there was a foundational document, uh, I call it a foundational document, it's a document that was used, the school's been existing for at least 20 years now, and there was this document that was called an individualized learning plan, and it was being used to get to know students, Um, it was to record their, their learning preferences, record their goals for the year. Uh, it was, it was used to have a conversation with parents and students prior to the start of the school year. And every student in the school has an individualized learning plan. So what I first found was that not all teachers use the same document and not all teachers use that document in the same way, Hmm. which was interesting. Yeah. Um, (laughs) considering that that's like a, a major piece of our school. So that, that was one finding. And then, um, as I looked more closely into, how individualization was happening within the classrooms, I found that it was happening in a lot of different ways. Um, now, whether you want to look at that as being a good thing or a bad thing, it was just that it was it was different. Um, some teachers really were uh, individualizing to the extreme. I would say where they not, they were taking the information that they gained during that initial uh, conference with parents and, and students, and really working tweaking their curriculum and their instructional delivery to the, the individual needs of the students. Um, other teachers, it, it wasn't so much. So I feel like there was a, there were, there, one of the findings was that there was basically a continuum of uh, individualization in practice happening within the classrooms. Um, so there was, so there was that. And, and there were different resources that were being used. Not all teachers used the same methods or strategies Uh, Or resources within the classrooms to individualize. So it was really interesting to have all those, you know, conduct those interviews and uh, make those observations, and just to kind of document how individualization was happening throughout the school. I did find that yes, their individualization is absolutely happening throughout the school. Um, So we we could certainly say that we were meeting the mission of the school, but. There were different perspectives. The, the teachers had different ideas for what it means to personalize learning, um, and, and how to go about doing that. So that kind of led those findings led to our, my action steps, which was basically to provide, find out what the teachers really needed. We were, we were this was in the middle of the pandemic, um, you know, and we we're heading into virtual learning, and it was like, well, how are we going to individualize for students? Virtually, <laughs> You know, um, and now our instruction has changed, changed completely. What are we going to do? So we ended up, um, we, we, we surveyed the teachers ahead of time uh, to kind of find out what they were interested in learning more about. Um, and, and then ended up having a team of teachers that volunteered to construct this professional development program that would um, train teachers on different resources that they could use within their classroom to individualize um, their instruction, virtually speaking. So we crafted that program, we offered the trainings over the summer prior to the start of the school year happening, and then we followed up with the teachers um, over like a three-month period to see how the implementation of using those resources and how the training impacted their instruction. And that's basically um, kind of how the study ended up rolling out.
0: <laughs> cool. That sounds super interesting. And what a really cool way to kind of engage your community in like a sort of like self-study kind of reflection process and um you know to glean some findings from that process. Did you did you how many people participated in your study by the end?
3: Uh you know so we we're a small school we only have about 30 33ish uh full-time faculty. So um there were actually 12 participants that ended up participating in all, in at least uh five of the trainings that we had. Um so I actually think for being a small school yeah. that was actually pretty good. <laughs>
0: No, that's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also in terms of like action step engagement, that's really great. You know, 12 people like really trying to do this kind of work at a small school is really awesome.
3: Yeah. And the other benefit of this too, um, you know, realizing we don't have a lot of teacher turnover at our school either. This was the other thing too. So the question was, you know, how we have teachers now that have been like myself, I've been teaching there for 17 years. <laughs> At some point, they are going to move on and be replaced. Um, and how do we pass on that knowledge? Like, how do we pass on what we do how, for meeting the mission of the school? So I thought that this was another way that we could kind of capture that and be able to, you know, pass it on. I think in within the interviews that we had also, it came across as there was never any training that had ever been offered on individualized, individualized learning. And that it was more believed that it just got passed on through village knowledge that this this idea of village knowledge that because we co-teach at our school that information is just shared with each other and that's just kind of how things get passed on um which which is true that does happen but that doesn't mean it always happens well or consistently <laughs> so that was another that was another piece of the study too
0: yeah yeah this whole notion of village knowledge is something that i feel like Resonates with probably many teachers and many schools out there. So, Janine, share with us some of your implications. What are some of the things that you think other people could find useful in their context that they could take away from your study?
3: Yeah. So, actually, um, the what I found for both within our local context here at the school, and then also which was confirmed with a lot of the literature that I read as well, um, was basically that you shouldn't you shouldn't rely on that village knowledge (laughs) that that Hmm. uh
0: surprise uh, surprise yeah
3: that that teachers do (laughs) if you're really expecting something to be implemented effectively that you do need to provide you need to you need to understand where teachers are coming from like what do they already know uh you know about this they need to have a common understanding especially so like in this it, it, with using that term personalized learning or using that term individualized learning, you know what were what's how do you define that what does that what does that mean within your school um so I think that was that was one thing that you needed to have this common understanding right and then you also needed to have the resources in order to carry it out so like you can't just say, oh go personalized learning or go you know individualized but not have access to any particular any resources. Hmm. Um, so you needed access to the resources and then of course you needed to know how to use them. So you really needed to have this, you know, these training sessions, this professional development, um, on what it meant to, to personalize learning and then how to actually, how to actually carry that out within the, the classroom setting. And then finally, the last piece was just that, um, it shouldn't be a one and done professional Mm, development that you The follow-up process and I think just the checking in and, um, you know, asking teachers to reflect on how's it going and what do you need in order to make it even better um, is also an important part of making sure that, you know, it's implemented effectively. Um, So those were the major implications. Um,
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. Janine, and, and I appreciate you sharing all those things. All right, give us one big takeaway. If you're, if you're saying something to a teacher or a school leader out there, what's one thing that you hope that they will take away from your study and maybe do in their school to make their school a better place?
3: I would say find out what the teachers need. Uh, what do they already know What, what do they need because they not only should you be individualizing for students or personalizing learning for students, but you need that that should be the approach the same approach to working with your your teachers as well, making sure everybody 's on the same page um, I, and just getting away from that idea of knowledge is just, just going to be passed on through conversations that you really do need to provide the training and that you need to, it can't just be a one and done training. It has to be, uh, there needs to be follow-up and accountability. I guess that would be it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I I love that. And I and I think that it lends to your last finding, which was if if you take time to do it over time to figure out what teachers really want, then you're really sort of immersing yourself in understanding who teachers are what they really need and all of these things are going to improve the culture of your school right going to improve the way that teachers feel bonded to your school are gonna you know just improve so many other kind of like more soft skills aspects of of schools that i think um can't be can't be understated um Did I say that right? No, can't be overstated. Can't be overstated. Janine, (laughs) thanks so much for sharing. I really appreciate this. Hey, everyone. This is Mike. Thank you so much, as usual, for listening to this episode of Rethinking EDU. This is our final episode in our... DIP researcher series in which we have been featuring amazing researchers from Northeastern University that we've spent the last two and a half years or so learning alongside. This episode features the culmination of our uh, exploration of our own research in our own contexts. And, you know, we don't talk a lot about our own contexts on this podcast. We're often just inviting others to get on here and talk about what amazing things that they're doing. So we hope that this gives you a little insight into our worlds, and a little insight into the things that we value, the things that we're exploring, and the things that keep us up at night. So I hope you enjoy our final few reflections here. Of course, we're going to keep our podcast conversation going. We've got an awesome lineup coming up of uh, more people that are doing amazing things in education. You can continue to support our podcast on patreon.com slash rethinking edu at the $1 a month level. If you don't think $1 matters, Trust me, it does. And be sure to check out this awesome podcast called Diving Deep EDU with our very
1: own Matt Downing. Thanks. A quick interruption to let you know about another great podcast. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Diving Deep EDU thought-provoking conversations.
0: Co-hosts, it was really lovely to hear about all your research. I feel like I haven't taken a lot of time to really like reflect on and think about all the research that you're all doing. It's really kind of dynamic and interesting and hopefully useful, right, in the future. Um, and as we always do here in Rethinking EDU, we want to take a little bit of time to reflect. This has been a really long episode, so I want to make sure that we get in all of our moments of reflection here, but we're going to make them quick hit moments. So Julie, let's start with you quick hit reflection from this conversation. What are you thinking?
2: I would say that anyone can take an action researcher stance and really try to improve your setting, your context, your school. You can can look at what is existing practice and what can you do to make it better. And I think all four of us really uh, took that researchers stance in our, in our place of work. And we were able to advance our organizations in some way. And I don't think that's exclusive to a a doctoral program, which is, I think, a revolutionary thought.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Matt. your quick hit reflection?
1: I'm going to circle back to the beginning, uh, thinking about you know ways that got us to the end here. And I'm sort of reflecting on that right now. And I couldn't have done it without you guys, Janine, Julie, and Mike. Um, and I think it's just so important to have networks and support systems and friendships. And uh, yeah, I just appreciate you guys.
0: Oh, Matt, I appreciate you too, man. All right, Janine, what's your quick hit reflection?
3: Matt took mine. No, um, no, I would say. <laughs> uh, kind of piggybacking on that. Again, connecting with people and just really, and that, that goes for not only when you're conducting research, obviously connecting with people, but also, you know, if you're, if you're going to be working in a school setting or wherever that and offering professional development, the common theme I saw here was know your stakeholders, right? What do they need?
0: Yeah, I love that. I, I couldn't agree more. My quick hit um, for reflection here is that I just appreciate all of you. You know, I appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate the people that are doing research out there that are really trying to make it happen and really trying to push forward the envelope in their context in the um, world of academia, but also just the world of making schools be better places for both students and the people that work there. Listeners, I thank you for being here. We thank you for being here for this whole episode. We know it's a little long, but that's okay. We wanted to share our last bit of research in our last episode here of our DIP researcher spotlight. We're gonna get back to our regularly scheduled programming in the coming episodes, where we're gonna feature some really amazing entrepreneurs that are doing some interesting things in education and technology. We hope that you'll tune back in to listen to those episodes as they come up in in the months to come. And as always, we appreciate you. Head on over to patreon.com slash Rethinking EDU to support our podcast at the $1 a month level. You will not go wrong with that $1 per month support. And as always, keep Rethinking EDU.